Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of the 2016 Code Conference. If you like it, please leave us a review at itunes.com slash Recode Replay. I'm really excited and happy to introduce the next guest, Jeff Bezos. So some uh, really long-time attendees may remember that you did make an appearance here once. Uh, yeah, when was that? It's like 2008, I think. 2008, like yeah. Every eight years, like clockwork. I'm right <laughs> and if I remember correctly, I think I did the interview just like this. Yeah. And I think the Kindle was pretty, pretty much new then. That's about right, because we're on our eighth generation, so right. somewhere Right, and we talked a lot about reading yeah. mm-hmm. and electronic reading, but you are now involved in so many things that I don't know if 60 Minutes can cover it. So, <laughs> so I actually don't... I'm just surprised. This is kind of a traditional cocktail hour, and I think you guys should examine your priorities. You're going to listen to this conversation. You could be at the bar. I'm just saying it's... A, no. The bars are locked until <laughs> this is over. The bars are locked. So um, there's just a whole bunch of, of things we could talk about. And to be very honest, one of them is just that, which we'll get to, is that you are, um, you've been around a long time and you're doing a lot of different things. And so you have a, a kind of a landscape view of, of tech and uh, innovation and what's going on. And I want to get to that, but I want to talk about some specific things first. And the first one is artificial yeah, probably, intelligence. And, you know, and the longer you've been around, the more humble you become uh, about <laughs> tech. <laughs> okay, that's good. You, you've been around a long time. I've been around a long time, yeah. I, I can remember some very early dinners with you yeah. uh, before you were uh, rich and famous. But um, uh, artificial intelligence is yeah. what I wanted to start with. Uh, you have a product, uh, or actually a family of products, called Echo. Uh, and they're driven by a platform called Alexa. That's right. And you're actually licensing that, licensing that to some other people. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's the, uh, the Alexa voice. Ser- we, we, we exposed two different SDKs for Alexa. One is the Alexa voice service, which lets you embed through a set of APIs, embed Alexa in your own device or app and do with it what you want. So you can have your, if you make an alarm clock, you can embed Alexa voice service in it. And then we have the Alexa skills kit, which lets you teach Alexa new skills. Uh, right. And so those two right. things work together. And I believe I get a weekly email from Amazon you do. telling me the new skills. Yep. Uh, Some which of them. Is fun to read. Yeah. Um, other companies also have turned uh, uh, heavily toward uh, a path that they say will lead them eventually to fantastic gains in AI yeah. through machine learning. Yeah. Uh, some of them are bots, smart yeah. bots. Some of them are voice uh, uh, activated like Alexa yeah. and actually have a, can have a conversation or hopefully can have a conversation with you. Uh, you, uh, I'm sure, uh, know about Google's claims at their I.O. conference where I, where I personally thought that there was kind of a little bit of a Thanks, Amazon, for getting people excited. Now we're moving in here, you know. So um, 
I guess my first question is, is this, is this the, the underpinnings of tech over the next 10 years as we mm -hmm. seem to be emerging from the period of frantic growth and development in smartphones? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I, I think it's gigantic. Um, I do. I think natural language understanding, I think machine learning in general, artificial intelligence, um, uh, this, it's probably hard to overstate how big of an impact it's going to have on society over the next 20 years. So it, it, it is big. Um, it, is, uh, it doesn't mean that um, you know, phones are going to go away or anything like yeah. that. It's not, it's, not like natural, it's not like voice interfaces are going to replace screens. So you know, people have eyes, and as long as people have eyes, they will also want screens, and, and we have fingers, we like to touch things, and so on. But it, but it has been a dream ever since you know, people started, you know, in the early days of science fiction, to have a computer that you can talk to in a natural way and actually have a conversation with and ask it to do things for you. And that is coming true. Um, and uh, and we're, you're seeing similar uh, amazing progress with machine vision. Uh, we're, you know, the, 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 the combination of new and better algorithms vastly superior compute power uh, and the ability to harness huge amounts of training data. Uh, those three things are coming together to solve some previously unsolvable problems. And they're going to drive a tremendous amount of utility for customers and customers are going to adopt those things. So uh, is this at Amazon in particular, are you deeply committed to this becoming a huge part of your business and what you do? A absolutely. We've been working on it. You know, we worked on it um, kind of behind the scenes for uh, four years. We have more than a thousand people dedicated just to Alexa and the Echo ecosystem. Uh, we have now a big third set of third-party apps, the Alexa skills um, that people have built using our SDK. And uh, it's a, uh, and there's so much more to come. It's just the tip of the iceberg of what you can do with these kinds you of say technologies. The tip of the iceberg is it the first inning, or is it's it the, the first inning? Okay, it might, it might even be the you know the first first guys up at bat. It's really early, and it's a, it's gonna. It's, I think we're on the edge of a golden era. It's going to be so exciting to see what happens. Just as a consumer, I want to see Who do you think are your competitors in this? It, it, given that the first guy's up at bat, yeah. we don't really know what's going to happen well, five I mean, innings all, later. All but. the major tech companies will do this, but there'll also be hundreds of startup companies, and there will be new advances. One of the things that right now, com bigger companies like Amazon have an advantage because of the, especially because of the training data sets that are required to do this. So you, you need a lot of data to do extraordinary things with the current algorithms we have. But just remember, humans learn in a very different way. So it's, we, we don't yet know how hu humans are unbelievably data efficient. We learn these incredibly complex things. You know, you don't have to drive a million miles to be able to drive a car. Right. But the way we teach a self-driving car to drive today is we have the algorithms drive a million miles. And they're still not as good in certain scenarios as a human would be. And so humans are doing all kinds of special things to make that possible. We're also very power efficient. So, you know, um, AlphaGo, which is a, a really impressive achievement, uh, beat the world's best Go player, as you guys undoubtedly know. But, you know, he's operating on about 50 watts. You know, his, it's, if, you had, if, if, if AlphaGo had to be limited to 50 watts, he'd have creamed it. 
And so it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's very interesting. Humans are just doing something fundamentally different from the current way that we do machine learning and machine intelligence. You think this up, you talked about the training data, and this is really uh, an important piece, I think, of the three things you mentioned. Uh, obviously, uh, Google knows a lot about you. Facebook knows a lot about you. You know a lot about, I guess, certain, you know a lot about what books people want to read and what things people want to buy, and I don't know, maybe you know some other things. Want to tell us other domains in which you know? I mean, you talk to you, Walt, in particular. <laughs> yeah? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, what about privacy? In other words, yeah. We already have a, a pretty healthy privacy debate. It's even more fierce in Europe yeah. about the collection of this data yeah. for t things, much more mundane things like targeting advertising. Uh, Sorry, I just recognized one of your camera guys. <laughs> Mr. Rick Smolin? Yeah. yeah, Mr. Rick Smolin. Saying hi. Hi, Rick. Um, what about, you know, that's just targeting advertising. Yeah. Or, or, or Google showing, allegedly showing their products instead of somebody else's product. This is going to get much deeper into our lives. Yeah. So, so what, are, what are the privacy I, issues? I, I think, when, and, and, and you haven't even touched on the other piece of this, which makes it even more complicated, which you see with Apple and, and the, you know, the NSA and the FBI, and, you know, because they're, I think that if you take the totality of, you know, privacy, um, and uh, our ability to store large amounts of information, to use it in ways that customers actually do want us to use it. So, you know, we're doing... Not ads, not... You know. Well, we, what we, you know, the, when we make personal recommendations for people, which we've been doing for almost 20 yes, years yeah, now, yeah. they genuinely like it. And, um, of course, we have to keep your purchase history to be able to do that. So there are... There are benefits, and I think one of the things that you have to do is when you collect and store data, you have to be clear about what you're doing. You have to, and not just, you know, subsection 17, paragraph 3. Clearly, as you can see, in our <laughs> privacy policy, we were allowed to do that. But you have to figure out ways to be kind of obviously clear. So, like, one of the reasons we always wanted to greet you by name on Amazon is so that you know, as soon as you come to the site, you see, welcome back, Jeff Bezos. You know you're not anonymous on our site. And, and you know that in a way that would never be as clearly uh, articulated by a set of terms and conditions. Because we're greeting you by name. We're showing you your past purchases. It's, it's, and so to the degree that you can arrange to have um, transparency combined with an explanation for what the consumer benefit is. So that's sort of the, the commercial piece. And then you get into um, the sort of uh, the, the uh, tension between uh, privacy and national security. And uh, that's what you see. You know, we, we're very like-minded with Apple on this point. We filed an amicus brief on their behalf. Um, and, but I think I, I believe that it is an issue of our age and that we as you know, a, a citizen run democracy are going to have to deal with that. And I think that the same principles that I laid out for commercial use, to one degree or another, may work there too. But your data is an encrypted. I mean, Apple is, is not only reacted by pointing out that their stuff is encrypted and encrypted in a way that they don't even have the keys to decrypt it, but 
there are hints from them that they're going to even include well, that's the more we, of their we, stuff. And we didn't even, I, even I'm, we're talking about how complex this issue is, and I didn't even bring up hackers and, you know, like, you know, yeah, you might, uh, setting the Apple thing aside because it's complex and I don't really know all of the details, but, you know, no matter, as you can see, you know, you try to protect the phone, the data on somebody's phone, and, you know, turns out it's not as protected as you thought it was. So when you're, when the, when you're you know, the bad guys get better and the good guys have to get better. And that's good. I don't think that's ever going to be resolved per se. It's going to be kind of a continuous cat and mouse game and, and um, the bad guys are always going to get better and the good guys are always going to get better too. We just have to try and stay ahead in that race. So you're doing devices and now they're smart, getting smarter and other people are going to be doing it and it's very early. But you're still in the retail business. You're still in the business of selling. Oh yeah, products. we're in we're in multiple. We do right. we have multiple things that we do. Um, but certainly, one of our very important businesses is our retail business. Okay, so we really like that business. You guys, do. I encourage you to shop early and often. Don't don't feel bad. <laughs> um, there's just uh, there's just a lot going on there. But one of the things. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was this whole shipping and infrastructure piece, because the yeah. idea of Amazon for many years was uh, I could buy it online and it would get delivered to me sometimes very quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, personally, I'm utterly astonished sometimes that this box shows up on Sunday and I only bought it Saturday at 7 o'clock. Yeah. It's there on Sunday. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But that's not your truck. That's no. a in some cases USPS it is. or whatever. So yeah, it depends on where you are. Sometimes it's our truck. In the US, it's mostly not our truck. In the UK, it's our truck half the time, and it's Royal Mail the other well, half. Well, are you building, are you aiming to take over that last mile or that last few miles? No, but we're aiming to supplement it heavily. So what's happened is, um, and this happened first in the UK, that uh, the Royal Mail ran out of capacity at peak. So we have to plan, just like you know, any company would, we have to have capacity, not for the average load, but for the peak. And um, in countries that have holiday selling seasons, which is most countries, there is um, a very big peak ahead of the, whatever the annual gift giving uh, holiday is in that country. And, uh, and, 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 and so uh, we have had to take over a lot of the last mile delivery in the UK over the last several years, and we're about half of it now doing it ourselves. And we're uh, in, in certain parts of the US, we're doing a lot of last mile delivery. It's still very small compared to the UK, but it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not that we're trying to You're not trying to put it. FedEx out of business or, no. or get in, better in, prices no. from in, them? No. In fact, what we want, I mean, well, we'd always like better prices. I mean, that would be, yeah. feel free. Remember, know. I've known you a long time. But better prices on, on transportation would be acceptable to us. Um, but, <laughs> but, I'm, but what I'm really saying is that we are driven to supplement their capacity. We will take all of the capacity that the U.S. Postal Service can give us and that UPS can give us, and we still need to supplement it. So we're not cutting back. We're growing our business with UPS. We're growing our business with the U.S. Postal Service, and still we're supplementing it. And I predict that that will continue for some time, as long as you guys keep shopping. Thank you. <laughs> but no ads. <laughs> um, what is the deal with these brick-and-mortar bookstores? What, the ones we're opening. Yeah. 
Um, I, it is, uh, we've opened one, we're, we've announced a second one uh, in, in San Diego. The first one we opened is... So a, remember, I'm a journalist. Two is a trend. <laughs> yeah, no, and we'll probably open some more. We want to, uh, uh, there's still, we're, we'll just open a few to begin with, and we're, we're learning. And uh, we've got a few experiments that we're, we're rolling out over time to try and figure out what the right format is, what the right store size is what the right approach is in general, um, you know, how it should interact with having a prime membership, and all the, like, there's a bunch of things that you, you, you want, we want to try inside the stores. And uh, already we like uh, what we're finding. You know, we're, the store is, many of you probably have not been there. There's only one store. It's in the University Village Mall in Seattle. But it's very different from any bookstore that you've ever gone into. It has a very small selection, very highly curated, only about 5,000 titles. And... Uh, uh, and they are all face out on the shelves, and they're mostly they're picked based on the data that we have at Amazon. So, from the from the website, and, and and it's if you come to the Amazon physical bookstore with a specific title in mind that you want to buy, there's a very good chance because we have such a curated selection that you'll be disappointed. Um, but why would we build a store that's designed to? If you know exactly what you want to buy, we already have this thing called Amazon.com, that's very very good at satisfying that need. And so this is about satisfying a completely different need. It's about browsing and discovery and having a really fun space to wander around in. Um, and I definitely encourage people to, if you're just curious about um, kind of the angles that we're taking, you should, when you're in Seattle. Isn't that what all the bookstore owners said when you started killing them <laughs> 10 years ago? Well, well they don't have the place where we could come and have fun and a look. We serve espresso, and you can walk around and find a book. Well, for, for, as a serious point, independent bookstores are sort of rebounding. Yes, they are. So um, that, that's uh, you know that's not really. The but key, they did say that. Not the key point of your question, but yeah, I mean, you know, there is. I mean, I, I think some people did. I, yeah, I, for us, it seems normal because we're we never think of ourselves as tied to any particular technology or skill set. We think of ourselves as tied to our customers, and we're trying to work backwards from their needs. And we'll learn whatever skills we need to service our customers. And so we had some ideas we wanted to experiment with in the physical world, and, uh, and, and, and that's what we're doing. We're just trying to learn how. Now, you know, some people did look at that in the early days. I saw some of the first articles about it, and some people thought we should have named it, you know, Amazon Irony Books or something. But, you know. <laughs> That would have been a good name. I, I like, I like that. A lot of clever people in the Meet world. Meet you over at Irony. <laughs> um, it's not too late. We could experiment. So you're also that. a newspaper publisher. Yeah. In my hometown. Yes. And I would just say, I would just observe that the Washington Post was very thin and doing a lot less uh, enterprise kind of journalism than they once did. And yeah. now they're thicker and yeah. doing more yeah. and have more people. Yeah. What, what's your goal there? Why are you doing yeah. it? Yeah. How can you do it? How can you change it? Yeah. It's, um, the, the goal is really simple. I, um, uh, you know, I bought the Post because, well, tactically I bought the Post because I've been friends with Don Graham for 15 years. If I hadn't been friends with Don Graham, it never would have happened for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, when he proposed it to me, uh, I was nervous that I didn't know anything about the newspaper business. And he said, look, Jeff, we've got a lot of people who know about the newspaper business. What we really need is somebody who knows something about the internet. And, um, and so anyway, he had to, he, he kind of had several conversations with me and 
who worked through whether I thought I could actually bring anything to the table. But, but the reason I finally bought it is because I think it's an important institution. And uh, I would not have bought it. If it had been a financially upside down, salty snack food company, I would not have bought it. And uh, I happen to believe it's very important. It's, it's the, it is the paper um, that is best situated, because of its geography, to cover the capital city of the most important country in the world. And that country, now more than ever, always it's needed. But it needs to, you know, our elected leaders and all the people in DC that run most of the country need to be examined. And that's a great paper to do that. And, and what do you bring to it that's different? Because I've been friends with Don for, for at least 15 years. Well, strategy-wise. And he never offered it to me, Jeff. Well, yeah. He, he, he. <laughs> I can't explain that. I can't I, explain it. I think it was Kara. An, it was Kara knows him it too. It was an oversight. He could offer it to the. I understand. Of us. I understand. I'm sure. He just, you know. Uh, okay. He couldn't what? exhaustively approach all of the logical powers. <laughs> what can you do, for that or with that? What you just described very our, important. Our uh, approach. So I believe that the business strategy of the Washington Post for many decades was fantastic because they were incredibly clear that they were going to be a local paper. And, they, and from a business point of view, that was an amazingly effective strategy. That paper uh, was so profitable for so long and made so much money, it was a very good strategy. The internet turned that upside down for a whole bunch of reasons that would take more than the hour that we had. We'd have to spend the whole conversation to go over all the reasons why the internet has turned local newspapers upside down. But um, what the Post has to do is a very difficult, but I think for the Post, a doable transition. I'm optimistic. I'm even more optimistic today than I was two years ago when I bought the paper. And that is we have to go from a business model where we used to make a relatively large amount of money per reader with a relatively small number of readers to a model where we make a relatively small amount of money per reader, but on a very large number of readers. That reminds me of Amazon. So we have, that's exactly right. And we have to go, we, and the good news is for all of the things that the internet took away from the media, the traditional media business, one of the gifts that it brought is almost zero cost global distribution. So, um, you know, if you wanted, if you go back in time, you know, 10 years or 20 years, it would have been very, very expensive to decide I'm going to have a global newspaper. You have to have printing plants everywhere and distribution facilities a everywhere. Did it, a couple of people did it very challenging. And now that's a, the fixed expense to do that is almost zero. So is the Washington Post going to become a truly global newspaper? Yeah, that's what we're working on. So we're working to become a national and to some degree, global uh, newspaper, and uh, for people who are interested in the Would news you publish of the it in capital languages? city of the United States, we've thought about it. You know, there's a lot of we have a lot of um, higher priorities than that because there's just still a lot of the English-speaking world available to us that we don't need to translate it for. Well, a lot of people in the United States, as a newspaper publisher, yes, you get to answer the Peter Thiel question. Oh, good. I'm excited. So the question is, whatever you think of Gawker Media, yeah. and you can, you can say what you think of it if you want, but uh, whatever you think of it, do you think somebody who happens to be a billionaire ought to be able to 
fund a series of lawsuits, regardless of their merit, whose real purpose is to put that company out of business and destroy them for personal yeah. reasons. Yeah, um, I don't. And I will, um, uh, my view on this, and, I, and again, I don't know the details of this particular situation. I don't think I really need to, because I'm thinking of, I will take it up a level and talk about the, some of the principles that I think would, in my mind, would apply here. And um, look, you know, uh, I, I can take this from a couple of directions, but um, you know the old saying that sometimes, you know, I think it's attributed to Confucius. Who knows if it's really Confucius or not? But um, seek revenge, and you should dig two graves, one for yourself. And uh, you know, uh, really, uh, you just want. How do you always have to ask yourself? How do you want to spend your time? How do you want to spend your time and your energy? And do you really want to do that trying to right some, even if it's legitimate wrong? Like, let's say that somebody actually did wrong you. Is that really how you want to spend your time? I don't think so. I think most people, if they step back, take a deep breath, they would say, I'm going to go on and do great things. I'm going to do amazing things in the future. Then from the, uh, uh, I would also say that public figure, you know, as a public figure, um, the best defense against, uh, and again, I'm not going to try to get into any particular story. This is not about um, Peter or Gawker or any particular thing, but it, the best defense to, uh, to speech that you don't like about yourself as a public figure is to develop a thick skin. It, 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 it's really the only effective defense because you can't stop it. Um, you know, you are going to be misunderstood. If you're doing anything interesting in the world, you're going to have critics. The only way, if you absolutely can't tolerate critics, then don't do anything new or interesting. <laughs> and then you can insulate yourself. Then think how wonderful your life will be. Is that the Bezos principle? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I would just say, um, you know, it's, 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 it's not, move forward. It's not worth um, uh, losing any sleep over. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, usually people, when you, if you see something, I don't know, you're kind of a public figure, and you've probably, things have probably been written about you that you didn't think were nice. That's true. And, um, and, and, and my, my advice, if you came to me and said, Jeff, this, you know, somebody wrote this and it really hurt my feelings, what should I do? I would say, go stand on a street corner and watch in a crowded urban area and watch all the people walk by. And think about what they're thinking about. I bet you none of those people are thinking about you. That's true. And um, I, they're all this. thinking none about... None of these people are thinking about They're me. all thinking... These guys are thinking about when can I get to the bar. No, and, you know, you. and so it's... it's it, you, you stand there on that busy street corner. All those people, you know, I, maybe I had a... I had, if, I, if somebody wrote something about me, I don't like... I'd be, oh, you know, it's, it's a, I don't like that. It's not true. It's wrong. I think about that. You're probably go, mad at I me. I'm, I, yeah, my wife says, if Jeff is unhappy, wait five minutes. So I can't, but I would go, I would go, I would go at least as a thought You haven't experiment. been unhappy long enough to pick I up would, the phone and I'm, I'm not so unhappy that I'm not here. Yeah, right. That's true. And so Every I, eight years. <laughs> That's right. You better watch it though. I might switch to nine. <laughs> um, and, and so, it, you know, you, if you're standing on that street corner, and really in your mind, you can do this thought experiment, like, Okay, there's a woman who just walked by. What's she actually thinking about? Probably 
what might, maybe what she's going to cook for dinner that night, or that um, the argument that she had with one of her employees, or whatever it is. Like, it's not about us. And if you kind of just take that step back, uh, and, you know, and then there's the, the kind of free speech, the, the, I guess the final thing, you didn't want an answer this long, I apologize, but the, I'm That's passionate fine. about this I issue. Hear, I wanna hear is, is you always have to remember this country has the best free speech protections in the world because of the Constitution, but also because of our cultural norms, and you don't want to erode those. You don't want to create any kind of climate of fear or chill with respect to free speech norms. And so, and, that, and the most important thing to remember about that is that um, beautiful speech doesn't need protection. It's ugly speech that needs protection. So of course, that's where the rubber's gonna meet the road. You know, somebody is gonna write something very ugly and certain people will say, well, they need to be punished for that ugly speech. And, but probably not really. If you step back and think about what a great society we have and that a big part of it is the fact that we have these cultural norms that allow people to say really ugly things. We don't have to like it. We don't have to invite those people to our dinner parties. There's also, you know, but, but you should let them say it. Thanks. Um, so a uh, little while back, you, uh, uh, Amazon was criticized for having a harsh work culture. Um, and I'm just wondering if, and, and you, you guys came out and defended yourselves and explained it. Uh, I have kind of a two-part question. One is uh, whether it is, whether it's, you considered it fair at all or not, whether it made you rethink anything about your work culture. Yeah, uh, no, it's a in, very good question. The company. And the second question is a little bit of a setup I need to tell all of you. I know you have a, an employee program that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I want to. Uh, but, but do the first okay. one first. So, uh, yeah, not, it really has not. I, I'm very proud of the culture that we have at Amazon. And, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, I think of it as a gold standard culture for innovation and pioneering work. And the, you know, and the people, I work with these people who, they're missionaries for what they do. They are, you know, if you're giving great customer experience, um, there's the only way to do that is with happy people. You can't do it with a set of miserable people, um, you know, watching the clock all day. So does that include work-life balance and all those things? Yes, but I would, I use, I teach um, three, uh, leadership classes a year at Amazon. I'm a part of it. They're bigger classes, but I come in and teach a session. And I always talk about work-life balance, except I like to use the phrase work-life harmony rather than balance, because to me, balance implies a strict trade, whereas I find that when I am happy at work, I come home more energized, I'm a better husband, a better dad, and when I'm happy at home, I come in and better boss and better colleague. And so that, that um, it's not, you could be out of work and 
be, have terrible work-life balance. You know, even though you've got all the time in the world, you, right. you could just feel like, oh my God, you know, I'm miserable and you would be draining energy. And so you have to find that harmony. It's a much better word. And I think for most people, it's about meaning. People want to know that they're doing something interesting and useful. And for us, you know, because of the challenges that we have chosen for ourselves, uh, we get to work in the future. And it's super fun to work in the future for the right kind of person. There are people, I mean, who, uh, uh, you know, we, it, we, ours is an environment that uh, embraces a lot of change. We have to because the internet is changing, the technologies that we use are changing. We operate at the intersection of, of technology and retail, both of which are highly competitive industries. And, but it's a really, um, for somebody who hated change, you know, I imagine high tech would be a pretty bad career. It would be, it would be very tough, you know, and there are much more stable industries. And so they should probably choose one of those more stable industries with less change and they'd probably be happier there. I'd be, that industry would be tough for me. So for, we're not all the same. And for me, a job that, I don't know, like for me, the job that would be the hard would be like, I don't know, insurance claims adjuster, something, you know, where I had the same job every day and it didn't change frequently. Um, that would be hard. I'd do it, but it would, and I'd do it at a high quality level, but I wouldn't like it. And a lot I, of them have iPads now. Okay, even so. I'm just saying there's nope, a little change I'm, there. Okay. okay. Pretty soon they'll have machine learning too. That's right. Um, the second, there's a second thing about your your work culture, uh, this program that, that oh, this, I learned about I, when we, we were, were discussing we are, um, here. We are, we're doing this thing, we've been doing it for just over three years now, and we're just in the process of open sourcing it, so I wanted to bring it to your attention. It's, um, it's called Career Choice, and I'm, I'm you know, kind of on the road uh, encouraging companies, especially bigger companies, Fortune 1000 companies that have big employee bases, to come to Amazon, learn what we've learned and see if any of it fits, would fit into your company. Career choice is for our fulfillment centers. And what we uh, have done is we have put together a, uh, a, a training program that teaches people in-demand careers in in-demand fields where they can get high-paying jobs. Could be airplane mechanic or nursing uh, or a commercial truck driver driving big rig 18-wheelers which is a very lucrative job and very expensive. It's a, anywhere from four dollars to $6,000 to, to go through the training to get a license to do that. So we have at, at Amazon a bunch of entry-level people in our fulfillment centers, who, for some of whom they'll stay with us and they'll build a career with us, but for many of them it's a stepping stone on the way somewhere else. And what we want is for them to have a choice. So if they would rather be an airplane mechanic, and the key, there are a couple of key things. One is you have to prepay the tuition because it's really hard for people to even if you were going to reimburse them, it's hard in many cases for entry-level employees to pull together five or $6,000 in a lump sum to pay for uh, the cost of this kind of training. So you prepay it. We prepay it, and, then, and, then what, but, and the thing that we didn't do at the very beginning, but we started doing after about a year, and that has worked really well, is we build the classrooms in the fulfillment centers in mainstream areas behind gigantic glass walls, and so all their co-workers walk by every day and they see their co-workers inside learning how to be nurses and airplane mechanics and commercial truck drivers and they start thinking, hey, maybe I should do that. 
So it's uh, that putting the classrooms right kind of on the plant floor is a big learning for us. And we now have 7,000 people um, engaged in the program. Uh, we already have some, uh, uh, some very successful graduates who've come out the pipeline at the end. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it gives people, I think it's really good for the company. It's great for the employee, but it's really good for the company. Because the last thing that any enlightened company wants is for any employee in their company to kind of feel trapped in that job. You want people to have a choice. If they want to be there, great. But if they want to be a nurse, then help them do that so they can go be a nurse. And you have colleges involved in this, right? And we don't pay for non-in-demand fields. So this is another thing. We, we, we have nothing against it, but we use the Bureau of Labor Statistics data and other data sources, and we have a list. And so, uh, because the, you know, one of the points here is we want to train you in something where you can then leave and go get a higher paying job somewhere. And um, uh, so, sorry, what was that? I was just going to ask, you have educational institutions? Colleges yeah, that do this. this is it's almost on your. It's, it's low, on your but it's almost ability. all done in coordination with local community colleges uh, that service the neighborhoods where we have fulfillment centers. Okay, and, thanks. But we have a whole we, we have a whole evangelist team that we're putting together to teach other companies how to do it. So if anybody is interested, um, you can email me, and I'm Jeff at Amazon.com. Um, and you'll read these. Somebody will. It's my read only it. email, and I see every email. I don't respond to everyone, but I do see everyone. So you're also, in addition to uh, all the other things we've already talked about, you're a media company outside of the Washington Post, uh, your, your prime service. You have yeah. uh, 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 a lot of video, including a lot of original video that you do, you're doing now. You have a music service that is, uh, some, seems somewhat less important to you, smaller. It's not Spotify or Apple Music size. But your video service is a big deal. Yeah, Prime Video. Can you talk about yeah. that? Why yeah, are this, you doing it? Where yeah. is it going? Do you, this, what do you think is the big change coming in, yeah. in this, television? This, uh, a little bit like machine learning, I feel like we're in a, 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 a really good spot as a society for better TV. It, you know, it used to be, if you go back in time 10 years ago, you couldn't get any A-list uh, actors or really A-list writers to do TV, it was very difficult, and or directors, and now you're starting. Everybody wants to do serialized TV, and because it's in some ways a better medium than a movie, um, you can tell longer stories. Binge watching makes it easy for people to watch the thing all at once if they want to. So there's a lot. There's a lot that's changing with sort of what is, has come to be called over-the-top TV, which is, you know, re represented by Netflix and Amazon Prime Video and. Hulu and now Stars and Showtime and everybody's kind of unbundling and going over the top. And uh, th this is great for consumers because consumers want that. They want that to be unbundled. They want to go in and pick and choose what they want to watch. And so we started, you know, we had, we had this program called Amazon Prime, which is one of the three pillars of our business currently. We have Marketplace, we have our third-party seller business, that's one. We have Amazon Prime, and then we have Amazon Web Services. Those are kind of the three existing big uh, pillars. And we're working on some others, too. We'll see if they, have, if they turn out. We'll, we don't know. We'll ask me in 10 years. But, but we have uh, Amazon Studios is now making original content for Prime Video. And that's going extraordinarily well. Um, we've got you know, multiple Golden Globe winning comedies. Uh, we've got an incredible uh, success in the show called Man in the High Castle. 
which is by far our creepiest show, and I highly recommended it. It's a show where uh, you know Hitler uh, won World War II and occupies the east coast of the U.S. after having destroyed Washington D.C. with an atomic bomb in 1945, and then fighting hand to hand throughout the country until 1947. So kind of family fun. Family fun, um, and uh, but but very interesting, and uh, so uh, those. The, this, the, 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 what, from a business point of view for us, um, we're, we get to monetize that content in a very unusual way because when we win a Golden Globe, you know, it, it, it helps us sell more shoes. And it does that in a very direct way because when people, if you look at Prime members, they, they buy more on Amazon than non-Prime members. And one of the reasons they do that is once they've paid their annual fee, they're looking around to see how can I get more value out of the program. And so they look across more categories, they shop more, they do, they, a lot of their behaviors change in ways that are very attractive to us as a business. And, and the customers utilize more of our services. And so it's, we, we really want to do things that will cause uh, you know, free trial conversion to go up. So people start Amazon Prime as a free trial member, and we watch the free trial conversion rates. And, uh, and then we want um, people to renew at the end of the year when it's time for their Prime membership to renew. And we already had extraordinarily good free trial conversion and extraordinarily good renewal rates when it was a physical program, fast, free shipping, was the founding benefit of Amazon Prime. And people really liked that, and it grew into a very large, successful program. But we've been able to monitor that people who use Prime Video change those two metrics. They renew at higher rates, and they convert from free trials at higher so rates. The, so you're doing the media stuff to encourage people to use more of Prime. Correct. I mean, that's, it, 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 it actually it's is. It's not that you want to be. It really is a flywheel. So it's hard. Whenever you're talking about a circle, it's always a little bit wrong to say, you know, which one is pushing the other because they're pushing each other. It's, a high, it's now become a physical digital hybrid membership program that, um, you know, isn't, it's, it's unlike anything else. Uh, they're, they're hybrid, you know, they're digital programs, obviously really good ones. And, um, but there's nothing quite like Prime. And so what we do, the way we think about it internally is we just want you to be a Prime member and then you get the best of Amazon. So, but, but on the media piece, on the, particularly on the video piece, uh, where you're doing these programs and you have other programs yeah. that, that are not We original, license programs too. Um, you're, that is not a principal business for you where you're trying to be bigger than Netflix or bigger than Comcast or no, I, I whatever. Would say, and in fact, I, you know, I, I don't even think on the, on the uh, demand side anyway, we don't compete. I, I would say we don't compete with Netflix for the reason I think people are going to subscribe to both. So I don't think, you know, some products are really substitute products and people make a decision. You know, if I'm going to buy a pickup truck, I'm going to buy a Ford pickup truck or a Chevy pickup truck, but I'm not going to buy both. And, um, but, you know, when it comes to these over-the-top subscriptions, I think people are going to subscribe to Netflix and Prime Video and Hulu and HBO and so on and so on and, and so on. And you're not, but, but, but you're... We do compete with these other guys on the supply side. So we go, we bid against each other. Right, I get it. But, but you're, you're building the flywheel. You're not building... Yeah. You're not saying, a, you know a, what, we used to be... 
primarily retail now, we're going to be primarily a TV. I think the way to think about it from the consumer's point of view is that because we have this unusual way to monetize the premium content, that um, we can charge less for the premium content than we would otherwise have to charge if we didn't have the flywheel spinning to help sell more shoes. So you have another thing going on that's close to your heart, which is space. Oh, yeah. That is close and to my heart. And you know that we have Elon Musk here tomorrow. Yeah. He's the other guy who's doing, uh, who's well known for doing private uh, recoverable uh, rockets yeah, and so right. forth. How, what's the difference between your companies and why are you doing it? And well, what's wrong with NASA? You know? I'm doing it because... Really? Uh, Come on. When I, was in, I d- when I was in high school, they used to show us I'll tell Those you. guys from NASA Here's, taking off. Um, well, you don't choose your passions. You're, you know, your passions choose you. I've been passionate about space and rockets since I was a five-year-old boy. So it's not a, you know, that, that at some level, that's why I'm doing it. But, but, but I have, um, I, I, I also think it's very important. And I'll, I would put it in an entrepreneurial context, uh, which is that if you look at the dynamism in the space industry, it's very slow, very little has happened. It's been in stasis for 50 years, by and large. You know, we do globally, in a good year, about 40 launches, four zero, 40. That's down from the peak. The number of launches per year isn't even flat. It's down. I think the peak happened maybe in the 70s. And so, why is that, why isn't there that kind of dynamism? I compare it to the internet. You know, if you look at my day job, there's a lot of dynamism. There are thousands of entrepreneurs, and you can't even keep track of it. Right. Even, it's, even if you're a professional. I, I, you I cannot, am a professional. And you, you can't, can't keep, keep track, track of it. Of it. Yeah. And it's, which is fantastic to, to be in the middle of an industry that's so dynamic that no matter how hard you try, you can't keep track of it. That's awesome. And the... The, um, so what's that all about? You know, I, I, when I started Amazon, it was me and a few other people. I was driving the packages myself, hoping one day to be able to afford a forklift. And, um, and 20 years later, we serve almost 300 million customers and have you know, 100 billion plus in sales. And we're just one company in this gigantic thing that didn't exist two decades ago. So that's about You're kind as, of the big gorilla. About as opposite from the dynamism of space as you get. Why is that? Well, I, I, know, I, I think I know why. If you, if you go back to when I started Amazon, all of the heavy lifting infrastructure to support Amazon was already in place. We did not have to invent a remote payment system. It was already there. It was called the credit card. And it was invented much earlier for people who traveled a lot and then for people who went to restaurants a lot and so on and so on. And finally, every, most people at that time already had a credit card. We did not have to invent transportation, you know, local transportation, last mile. There was this thing called the U.S. Postal Service and UPS, which was not invented for e-commerce. But if we had had to deploy last mile transportation 20 years ago, it would have cost hundreds of billions of dollars of capital would have been impossible for a company like Amazon to even conceive of doing that. Same thing, deploying compute infrastructure. There was already a computer on every desk, and it wasn't put on every desk so that 
people could do e-commerce. There was a computer that was mostly in the home so people could play games. And there was also, how did the internet grow so fast? Even there, the heavy lifting infrastructure had already been done for another purpose, which was the long distance phone network. The, all of the fiber in the grounds at that time and all the ways, the, all the microwave communications towers and all the things that existed two decades ago were put in place for another reason. Again, would have been hundreds of billions of dollars of CapEx deployed. So when it comes to space, I see it as my job. This is what I'm, I'm building infrastructure the hard way. I'm, I'm using my resources to put in place heavy lifting infrastructure so that the next generation of people can have a dynamic entrepreneurial explosion into space. And I think that's possible. And I, and I believe I know what, the, what you need to do to put that infrastructure in place um, so that future generations of entrepreneurs can have a, a, a solar system as dynamic and interesting and varied as what we see on the internet today. I want thousands of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in space. And to do that, we have to dramatically lower the cost of access to space. Right now, only the most expensive things can logically and reasonably do, be done in space. Basically, if you can find any other way to do it, you should do it a different way. Um, and it's just too expensive, even the least expensive. I mean, you can do little CubeSats and things and hitch a ride, but there's just only so much they can do. And how are you different in your point of view from Elon? Well, we're very like-minded. I know Elon, and, and we're very like-minded in many ways. We're not conceptual twins. Um, he's, I, I, uh, one of the things that I want us to do is go to Mars, but for me, it's one of the things. He's singularly focused on that. Um, I have, uh, and I also think kind of, you know, motivation-wise, I, I don't like the, for me, I don't find that plan B idea motivating. You know, this, I, I, I have nothing wrong with it. I think, I think it's good when the world has lots of different motivations, and, but I don't want a plan B for Earth. I want plan B to be, make sure plan A works. And, <laughs> and this is, I think you go to space to save Earth. And we know about the solar system now. We have sent robotic probes all over the solar system. Let me assure you, this is the best planet. <laughs> In this solar system. Yeah, I, I rarely have you sure about such strong conviction about things. But let me assure you of that. And, um, and we need to protect it. And the way we will protect this planet is by going out into space. And you don't want to live in a retrograde world. You don't want to live on an Earth where we have to freeze population growth, reduce energy utilization. You enjoy, we all enjoy, an extraordinary civilization. And it is powered by energy. Um, and it's powered by population. It's why urban centers are so dynamic. We want the population to keep growing on this planet. We want to keep using more energy per capita. And by the way, it would be completely immoral of us to say, well, we'll just kind of freeze energy utilization where it is, because the other 7 billion people who are just now coming online to more energy usage, they, they're going to want what we have. Uh, you know, they, they want to fly here and go to your conference, and that takes a lot of energy. So. We do want to keep using energy, and, um, and energy is limited here. You can do a simple calculation. If you take baseline global energy utilization today and grow it at just 3% a year, the power of compounding is so extraordinary that within just a few hundred years, 
you will have to cover all the land mass of Earth in solar cells. Mm. Just 3% compounding in just a few hundred years. So what are you going to do? Well, I think what you're going to do is you're going to move out in space. This will happen over, you know, in, in, over the next few hundred years. We, all of our heavy industry will be moved off planet. And Earth will be zoned residential and light industrial. And that just makes a lot of sense. You, you shouldn't be doing heavy industry on Earth. Resources are more plentiful in space. And I run for the zoning energy, board. Energy, I mean, energy. Carol wants to be mayor of one of the cities. And, and then you'll send the little vitamins down. You know, we can build gigantic chip factories, you know, in space, and then just send the little bits down. We don't need to actually build them here. And uh, this planet is very uh, hard to get energy. You know, even if you're using solar power, because the Earth shades itself, you only get solar power for half the day. In space, you can get solar power 24-7. So there are a lot of advantages. Would you put the industry on a particular planet? No, or would I would. I'd, ha I'd have it orbit. I'd have it closer to Earth. The problem with other planets, and we'll do all of that in a given time, you know, and and, um, and and people will visit Mars, and people will settle Mars, and we should because it's cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, it, but 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 I but for heavy industry, I would actually put it in space. The the transit time between Earth and Mars is long. Uh, and to speed it up requires um, unreasonable amounts of energy. All right, I have one last question, then we're going to do audience questions. I, we could be, honestly, I could take another hour of your time, but um, I'd be interested in knowing what you expect to be doing, you expect to be doing, uh, in five years. Well, I tap dance into work. I love my job, and so I took my... Uh, wife's uh, family, um, my parents-in-law and their kind of extended family, to the south of France on an awesome vacation. And we had a great time and ate amazing food and played in the beaches. Um, and Did you stay off the grid? I'm mostly. I'm, I'm actually pretty good at staying off the grid on vacation. And, and, I, and, I, and I got back. And uh, despite all the fun I'd had, and I really I happened to like my in-laws, so it really was fun. Despite all of that, when I got back, I literally ran into the office. So I, I feel incredibly lucky, and um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, 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 so I imagine I'll be doing the same thing five years from now. All these. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I. But you'll be doing those. Those projects. I like things where wandering matters. I like to wander. I like to, you know, go down blind alleys and. Um, okay, but you mentioned very quickly. I, I, I make sure. Our, I make sure all of my meetings do not have tight agendas. I don't like a tight agenda on my meetings because tight agendas assume you know where you're going, which for a certain kind of meeting is right. You know, if you're doing like a weekly business review and you're going through a metrics deck, that should have a good agenda. But most meetings are not like that. Most meetings should be used for a kind of mild brainstorming or something like that. We're really doing a lot of wandering. And wandering is when you, you know, is super important. There's a knowing, thinking you know exactly where you're going is, is, is a kind of lack of humility that doesn't let you invent. And so the, the, the wandering, and I, I like, that's why I like, you know, the Washington Post is a, is for a curious uh, person, a playground. I'm learning so much about the news gathering business. I didn't know anything about it. 
Um, and there's lots of opportunity to, to wander and explore there. And certainly Blue Origin and building reusable spacecraft. And it's an incredible, uh, incredible journey. And then Amazon is, you know, uh, in the middle of, you know, one of a handful of companies in the middle of what is the most amazing uh, amount of entrepreneurial dynamism I think the world has yet seen. Going back to the five years, so you're going to be in the same job, but you mentioned very quickly and non-specifically. Oh, I might also be. No, I'll oh. still. I was. Okay. I have four kids, and I'm just thinking, will I be a super grown-up yet? And I don't think so. So no, my young. No, I'll still have a couple of years. My wife hates the phrase "empty nest." She thinks it's very negative. And so um, I have four kids. The oldest is six. So your word is super grown-up. Her word. And I like it a lot, though. It's super grown-ups instead of empty nest. So, you do, because that way you can look forward to when your last kid goes off to school, you can be like, yes, we're finally super grown-ups. And then you can, you can travel together and do more things together and, Man, you know. I never thought of that. Yeah. My wife's that's, here. That's my wife's I'm, I'm gonna ask her immediately after. You guys whether, are super grown-ups. Yeah. Whether she Unless you have a small child, I don't know about No, we have a small grandchild. <laughs> um, during the conversation, I'm, I will get to questions, I promise. Five years. During those five years, you mentioned very quickly in the conversation that you had these three pillars yeah. and some other things you were working on. Yeah. What are they? Well, um, there are a bunch of them. I mean, um, but and you've, and some of them are out there. You see them, and it's hard to tell at this stage. They're, I think of them as little seeds that we've planted, and we'll see. Will they turn into big trees? Yes, yeah, so give and us some examples. Amazon Studios. I think Amazon Studios could turn into a fourth pillar. It's possible. Um, what we're doing with Alexa and Echo and natural language understanding, and that evolves into an artificially intelligent agent. And by the way, I think there are going to be a bunch of artificially intelligent agents in the world. I don't think I think you're going to find just a bit like apps and websites that this they're going to be specialties, and you may not ask the same AI for everything. Some AIs may be better at certain things than others, and um, and so you might you know I bet the average household will use a number of these. And so, that, but to me, that's a very exciting um, seed that we've planted. It, it'll, and, you know, I, I'm, I love working on stuff like that, and the team is brilliant, and, uh, you know, our, it's true of our studios team, it's true of our uh, natural language understanding team. It's just, it's so much Any fun. other teams we don't know about? Well, I can't obviously give you um, any... Yes, you can. No, I can't give you anything. You're just among friends. But I, but I am being very sincere that those two seem like very, okay. they seem very promising to me. Well, thanks. Uh, fun. Thanks Thank for you. an annual eight-year visit. <laughs> now, now we have some, some questions. Hey, over here. Hey, Jeff, Mark Mahaney. Uh, so on that fourth pillar, and yeah. you'll figure it out in 10 years, like what are you going to be using to figure out whether it's pillarable uh, you know, over time? And then yeah. it sounded like earlier maybe like, like a parcel business didn't seem like it'd be one of those pillars, but anything else that's obviously you wouldn't include uh, that just doesn't seem, seem to make sense for you? Yeah, I, you know, there are tons of things that um, I think are probably unlikely for us to pursue. I mean, even though there would be giant industries and would be very interesting and so on, but they're the price of admission in those industries is so gigantic. I mean, you know, the obvious, you know, there are many, you could just go down the list of, of large market cap companies or very big industries. You don't want to, I personally think it would be very challenging to get into the business of oil exploration and production. You know, it's a very, it's a very complicated industry um, that uh, uh, is, 
as far as I can see, extremely well served um, by really smart people at ExxonMobil and so on. And so, um, so the, the landscape is gigantic, and we will ever only enter into the tiniest little portion of that gigantic landscape. Um, so it's kind of hard to know. I'll tell you how we decide to give up on ideas. Um, so if we've worked on something for a long time, we tend to, you know, because it's hard to know when do you stop. You know, the, I, I think, I think the, uh, you know, every single important thing we've ever done, the most important things have always seemed um, dumb to industry experts at the beginning. So you have to get really good results you have to be. You have to defy conventional wisdom, and the problem, of course, is that conventional wisdom is usually correct. And so, you, it, the, a simple test, like let's go talk to ex experts and ask them if we should do Amazon Web Services, that would be a huge failure. They would all tell you, "This is stupid. Stick to the knitting. Um, you've got a great retail business. Whatever you do, don't do this AWS thing. It's, you know, you can't possibly work." And of course, that would have been wrong. Um, and so you, 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 you can't listen to people at the beginning when they say it won't work, but you do have to sort of say, what are we doing differently? What's going to Now, let's say you, you're being stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details, which I think is the right recipe. You want always to be very flexible on the tactics and the details, but very stubborn on the vision and the strategy. And at some point, though, you may need to give up even on the vision. So you planted the seed. You, you know, great teams worked on it for multiple years. How do you know when, when is that day where you say, you know what, let's try the next one? Um, and I think it's when the last high judgment champion folds his or her cards. And so um, I'm willing to keep funding things if, if, if there's one high judgment champion who still wants to keep trying. And I think that's... Um, uh, extremely important, because I think most companies, uh, especially larger companies, give up on things too soon. And, um, uh, and, but when the last, sometimes I'm the last high judgment champion, and then eventually I start to wonder if I'm high judgment. And, uh, and, and <laughs> <laughs> so that's another good time to fold the cards, maybe. But um, uh, you, you should give up on things, but you shouldn't give up easily. Okay. Yeah. Rob. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Walt. Great conversation. See you. Um, great seeing you guys. So I was surprised that Walt didn't bring this up, and it's very unpleasant and might ruin everybody's appetite, but it seems important. Donald Trump. <laughs> and I'm it's actually the next thing on my list, but the clock. Well, I'll help you with then, Walt. So in my judgment, Trump would be a disaster. I know many people share that. And also, in my judgment, I've been saying this for about six months, I think he has about a 50-50 chance of getting elected. You famously uh, took him on when he attacked you unfairly and unreasonably and Amazon. And I'm curious, now that he's the presumptive Republican nominee, what's your perspective on the dichotomy between Jeff as a business leader of a $100 billion company, revenue company that has to be successful, whether or not he's president, and Jeff as a citizen that cares so deeply about the planet and our society, and what do you think we should do and what, it's, what do you think you're going to do? Well, um my response to that is on this narrow point. Actually, it's very similar to what we were talking about earlier, which is one thing that I, I think is not appropriate that, uh, that, the, the, uh, that Donald Trump is doing is uh, 
I think uh, working to freeze or chill uh, the media uh, uh, that are examining him. You know, and it's, it's, it's just a fact that we live in a world where half the population on this planet, if you criticize your leader, there's a good chance you'll go to jail or worse. And we live in this amazing democracy with amazing freedom of speech. And a presidential candidate should embrace that. They should say, I'm running for president of the most important country in the world. I expect to be scrutinized. Please examine me. That's a very important cultural norm. And the cultural norms are, without the cultural norms, the Constitution is just a piece of paper. Therefore? Therefore, it's, you know, I, would, I, will, I certainly will, you're, you're asking me about my own behavior. Um, you know, the, and also all of our behavior. I'll only speak for myself. If you took a vote here, probably Trump wouldn't get more than 5% of the vote here. Probably 50% would be discussed with both choices. But I don't think, uh, I think this, the tech world, which is very much knowledge-based and progress-based, doesn't like somebody that's as ascientific and ahistorical and look. As here, that let tone. me give, let me tell you what I. I'll, um, Catherine Graham, the previous owner of the Washington Post during the Watergate years, um, was uh, 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 threatened by uh, Haldeman, who famously said, and I will leave out a bit of the quote because it's too crude to say, in, uh, on stage. Um, but uh, he said, you tell Kay Graham, if she prints that, we'll put her blank through a big fat ringer. And, uh, and then they actually worked to, uh, the Nixon administration worked to try and get, uh, they also owned TV stations, and they tried to get their broadcast licenses rescinded. It's, it's completely un-American. And so, you know, I guess the only thing I would say is as the, with Kay Graham as my role model, um, I'm very willing to let any of my body parts go through a big fat ringer, <laughs> if need be. Great answer. Over here. Yes, sir. Hi, John Fort from uh, CNBC. Um, I had a question about tight agendas versus wandering, which you mentioned was interesting, but applied to your retail business. Uh, a couple years ago, I asked you about brick and mortar stores and what it would take for you to actually roll those out. And you said something like, well, we'd have to find something really special and different that we could do. That's right. Before we did that. Now you're doing it. Mm -hmm. In Seattle, you're San Diego and, and more to come. What is that thing that you found that has led you to really continue exploring brick and mortar? What you are, if you go look at that, I don't know if you've had a chance to visit that store yet or not, but what you'll find there is that the browsing experience is reinvented. Um, and it's a bunch of very small things. It's that the books are all face out on the shelves. It's that the curation is very uh, small. It's that we're using the data from Amazon.com to select the titles. So for example, almost every book in the store has five stars. Um, unless it's there for a different reason. So we also have like the top 100 bestsellers and they're whatever they are. But um, so 
it's, there are a bunch of very small things and it makes a very big difference in the customer experience. But it is, it's something that's easier to experience. So you're saying that there's something about the physical space that Correct. allows the way it's laid wandering out. and kind of demand creation that it's you can't a, I would say that um, one of the things that many, many observers have noted over time, you know, there are many discovery methods online. So I'm learning about new books online all the time. Um, and certainly our personal recommendations do that, but you know, I see tweets about books and I see all sorts of, you know, there's a, tons of discovery going on uh, and tons of serendipity. Um, and, but there was always one, you know, that kind of serendipity that you get from just wandering around bookshelves looking at book covers is, is, is a kind of a, yet another kind of serendipity. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do in a kind of way that's accelerated with the data from Amazon.com. Thanks, John. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi. I'm Vijay. I'm from India. So we missed a little bit of conversation on India. You said that uh, when you started Amazon, in U.S. had a ton of infrastructure on multiple aspects. That yeah. Had, but India seems to be not having that. And you're doing incredibly yeah. well there. So wanted to yeah. know, are you like long with a lot of infrastructure investment? And well, we're doing, as you, as you point out, we're doing a lot of it ourselves. So in India, we do most of our last mile transportation ourselves. So you know, it's a, uh, uh, it, it wouldn't be our first choice for how to do it, but it's the only choice. And so that's what we do. We also try to travel shorter distances. So we open many more smaller fulfillment centers instead of having, you know, larger ones slightly more distant. Um, so we're kind of adapting to the uh, local model. And also the regulations in India are very different. So it has to be a three-piece sales model. All of our sales in India are marketplace sales. We don't have any uh, of what we, you know, internally what we call owned inventory. Yes, over here. Hi, Walt. Hi, Jeff. Great conversation. My question is about retail. Um, and I used to be, I used to work for a Benville-based retailer before, and we used to watch how Amazon Fresh was rolling out. Um, and I think Prime Now is probably the thing that should keep grocers up at night if you run a grocery store. So there's a lot of innovation in terms of fulfillment and assortment and all those kinds of things. And I'm curious, when you look you know, 10 years out, 20 years out, what are the big problems that, you know, that you're excited about kind of applying Amazon scale and ingenuity to in retail that you think will fundamentally transform experience beyond where it's come in the last 20 years, which is pretty phenomenal? Well, I think that the, the, the three big needle movers in, in my opinion, we've thought this for 20 years, are selection, price, and speed of delivery. delivery convenience, delivery speed, and an associated set of attributes. And I think there's still a lot of progress to be made on those things. And then, I, you know, I, and, say, and also discovery. And I think if you get category by category, there's tons of invention remaining. You know, I'm very excited about uh, apparel and fashion because I think that's a, a, a product category where you can do so much invention online. So I don't, over a 20-year time frame, I predict that um, selection, price, and delivery accuracy and speed will still be major drivers. You know, it's impossible for me to imagine 20 years from now a customer saying, I love Amazon, I just wish you delivered a little more slowly. Or <laughs> I love Amazon, I just wish you had less selection. Or I wish your prices were a little higher. 
You know, it, it, so when you find, and I would, I would urge all of you in your own businesses to think about that. Uh, think about what are the things that you know will be true even 10 years from now? Because if those are stable in time, unlike everything else, so everything else, your competitive set will change, your, um, te the technologies that you have available to you will change, but the customer needs if you find the right ones, will tend to be stable in time. And then you can build strategies around those things. And all the energy that we put into making sure that we're delivering quickly will still be paying dividends 10 years from now because it won't ever go out of style. Jason Del Rey, the e-commerce reporter for Recode. Hey, Jeff. Um, you, Amazon has been in China for a long time now, and it's been, it's been a rough road in, in a lot of ways. And... India, you've been in for about three years now. Two different markets, but two very critical markets internationally. And, for two, and two completely different results. And so, thank I was, God. I, I, <laughs> I was I was wondering if there were if there were any learnings from the approach in China that has. Yeah, there are tons of learnings, but I would also just say, as markets, as they are just completely different. So I think some of the. Um, Investors in India in the early days thought that India might be a replay of China, and that has, you know, they have found out that that has not, it hasn't gone that way. Um, and uh, our team in India has just done an unbelievable job, and um, there's the, the, the uh, uh, and there are a bunch of reasons why it's different from China. It's a very long conversation. Um, it's not one thing, it rarely is. It's, you know, it's probably 50 little things. But, um, uh, but our team is just deserves huge uh, kudos and congrats in India. I, I ask because, you know, I've been told that some, some people who worked on the China business early on have visited India and imparted at least some lessons. Yeah. Um, are, are well, there I, I'd say one of the top-level lessons is that, um, is that uh, we, uh, we have done much more local market customization in India than we did in China. In China, we did, uh, we did some local market customization, but we, tried, we mostly tried to roll out what had worked well for us in Japan, Germany, the UK, Spain, France, Italy, the US, et cetera, and it needed more local customization. And so that's, but you know, I'd say that if you, have to, if you want me to kind of pick one meta lesson it's that one that we needed in India. And that team, we gave them all their own software engineers. I asked them to be you know, fast-acting cowboys um, instead of calm, clear-headed computer scientists. And they took those instructions. We have a Just Do It award at Amazon. We give a Nike shoe to people who have invented things that nobody asked them to do, and they just did it. They give away a cowboy hat in India instead. And um, they have just. They've just done an amazing job. Thank you. So I have to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, I know you have to leave. Yeah. Uh, we have a, some people still at the mics. Are you yeah. willing to at least clear the mics, or do you have to go? Oh, right now? Sure. Yeah. You are? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yes. I, I mean, how many is that? I mean, Because they yeah. just flashed that at me, and that may, no, if may you, come if, from your if, folks. If you have more questions at the mics. Uh, OK. Nobody else go to the mics, please, because okay. we have to respect his time, and he's already way over. Neelai, concise. <laughs> and Neelai is my good friend. 
<laughs> uh, no, it's, uh, here's a simple one. Um, you said Prime Video drives people to buy more yeah. shoes. Why isn't there a Prime Video app for the Apple TV? Why don't you sell the Chromecast in your store? Why aren't you trying to go wider with that business if you're just converting it into shoe sales? Yeah, we're, uh, it's a very complicated um, discussion to have, and a lot of the most, uh, a lot of the parts of that discussion, you know, I think, I think private business discussions should stay private, so I'll do that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I can't give you too much there, but um, there are, uh, there are, it is not uh, easy to put, we don't want to sell, we sell Roku, we sell Xbox, we sell PlayStation. We're happy to sell competitive products on Amazon, and we do it all day. We, you know, we sell Nest thermostats. We do. We sell Apple TVs on Amazon. Do we? Okay. I think. I don't know. And um, I think I don't I, know. You guys might find it credible that I don't know our Somebody entire. Somebody could look selection. that up. Um, um, but. But, 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 but we do, when we saw those devices, if you want the simplest version of this, when we saw those devices, we want um, our player, our Prime Video player, to be on the device, and we want it to be on the device with acceptable business terms. And so we, you can always get the player on the device. The question is, can you do so with acceptable business terms? And if you can't, then... Uh, you know, we don't want to sell it to our customers because, you know, they're going to be buying it thinking they can watch Prime Video and then they're going to be disappointed and they're going to return it. So you're saying you don't want to pay Apple's 30% tax for Prime signups if you put I, the app on the store? I'll just, now you're asking a question where I'll just say, you know, I think private business discussions should remain private. Neelai? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Uh, one of the things I think that's most impressive about what you've done is run a public company for a very long time, earning not that much money on a relative basis. And today in startup land, it feels like going public is something that companies don't want to do. So I'm curious, when you look at a company like Uber or some of the other startups that take on private capital, do you think, if I had been in that situation, I would do exactly what you're doing? Or do you think, just go public already, it's actually not that bad? That's a very, you know, I think it's very case specific. Um, so I think it, it's, there's no one size fits all answer. Um, I think these very large private companies, in my opinion, probably could go public with no, it wouldn't hurt, hurt their freedom of movement at all. Um, and they probably, so they probably could go public. So they're too, they, part of what's happened is they also just may not see a need to go public. So there are some great reasons to go public. If you need to raise a lot of capital, I mean, really a lot, it might be more effective to be public. The private capital markets have gotten so large, um, and that's a relatively new phenomenon. That's happened just over the last couple of decades. The private capital markets have gotten so large that to some degree that argument has gone away. The other reason that you might want to go public is to um, offer employees liquidity. I think that argument remains. Now, there are, of course, these private liquidity markets that have sprung up to satisfy that need, but they don't do it as well as the public markets would. So probably for the employees, it would be better if the companies went public. For the, uh, you know, for the major share owners, it might not be better to go public. So those interests might not be perfectly aligned. Okay, I think we have one more question. Yeah, great. Am I right? Um, there, you can't get Apple TV on Amazon, by the way. I just looked it up. Thank you, Lauren. Good. You can't get a Roku, though. 
Uh, so Lauren Good from The Verge, hello again. Uh, my question is about hardware. For an online retailer, you've certainly made a fair amount of hardware, but one category that we haven't seen Amazon really enter is wearables, and a lot of your competitors are. So what are your thoughts on the current state of the wearables market? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting market, and you know, and I, I obviously can't talk about our future roadmap, but I do think that, um, Again, I think that's also in its infancy. I think you're going to see a bunch of different products be successful there, in, in, you know, with different functions. And but I, I don't think you've seen the tip of the iceberg yet. So is it something that Amazon is exploring? Not that I can talk to you about. So you know, the, the, what are the whole, you know? And I think you know, I would advise any entrepreneurs in the room. I mean, I think roadmap questions, product roadmap questions should generally not be answered. Um, you, you, I mean, it, it would be- Can I just point out though? Yeah. You didn't say no to her. You didn't I was say trying to say- No, we're I was not trying to say, that. Oh, no, I would never say that. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you were looking at a wearable, would you be interested in it from a payments perspective? Because some wearables now let you tap to pay. Sounds like you want a product more job. From a <laughs> you come talk to me afterwards. Crazy, I want to see what- trying to hire me. Yeah. Come, come tell me your ideas. No, no, don't come talk to him. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jeff Bezos. Thank you, Laura. That was great. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay, and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, where Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.